In May 2004, Beres Gort and I met in London to record a dialogue we had scripted, exploring the relationship between creativity and imagination. Beres Gort is senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of St Andrews, and has written widely and edited a number of books on aesthetics. Beres, could we begin with your characterizations of creativity and imagination, taking imagination first? In section two of your paper, you distinguish four uses of imagine. But suggest that, in what you call its core sense, imagining means thinking of something without elithic or existential commitment, that is, without commitment to its truth or falsity, existence or non-existence. To take your own example, to imagine a wet cat on this conception is to think of a wet cat without holding either that such a cat exists or that such a cat does not exist. And in the propositional case, to imagine. That say my cat Emmanuel is wet is to think that Emmanuel is wet without holding either that this proposition Emmanuel is wet is true or that it is false. Now I wonder to what extent this might be regarded as the core sense of imagining. Take the case of Macbeth imagining, as we would say, that there is a dagger in front of him at the beginning of Act Two of Shakespeare's play. At the point in his fevered soliloquy at which he first reaches out to grab the dagger, he believes, in this case falsely, that there is a dagger before him. So here we have a case of imagining that does involve a lethic and existential commitment. Macbeth is committed to the truth of "there is a dagger before me," and to the existence of the dagger he imagines. Well, I didn't mean by core sense the sense that is common to all uses of imagining. That is, I wasn't trying to give a definition of imagination in general. I was trying to pick out just one use of the term. This use is, however, an important one, and is one which is central to my aim of exploring the connections between imagination and creativity. I suggested that there are several other uses of imagining, which don't fit the sense I identified. One is that in which to imagine something is to falsely believe it, such as when I imagine a coat rack to be an intruder. That use of imagine is the one in which Macbeth imagines a dagger in front of him. There are other uses too, of course, such as that in which to imagine is to form an image of something. It's in this sense that you imagine your daughter's face when you talk to her on the phone. In this latter sense, it's perfectly possible to imagine something while believing it exists, but it's not the sense I was after in trying to find a connection between imagination and creativity. Right. And you'd presumably want to say something similar in the case of imagining something while believing that it doesn't exist, such as in reading or writing a novel. Yes,、uh, I notice that you wonder whether it makes sense, from my view, to talk about imagining fictional characters, since we believe that they don't exist. Well, I think it's perfectly possible to both imagine something and to believe that it doesn't exist, since we can have two distinct propositional attitudes to the same content. I can believe that something exists, and qua believing it. I'm committed to its existence. I can also have the distinct attitude of imagining it exists, and quay imagining it, I'm not committed to its existence. Having two or more distinct propositional attitudes to the same content is, of course, very common. So I think that the sense of imagining I identified is legitimate, though it doesn't, I agree, capture all of the different senses in which we talk of imagining things. Okay, so in this particular case, if I can press you here, however. It is not that there is a different sense of imagining which admits believing truly in the falsity or non-existence of something. That is to say, 
While you accept that imagine can sometimes mean believe falsely, as in the case of Macbeth, you don't accept that imagine can sometimes mean believe truly in the falsity or non-existence of something. Rather, when I imagine a fictional character, say Harry Potter, I both think of him without commitment to either his existence or non-existence, I just think of him, and at the same time, as it happens in this particular case, believe that he does not exist. In other words, what I've just called imagining Harry Potter is, on your account, a combination of two things. Imagining in your core sense, i.e. thinking of him without commitment to either his existence or non-existence, plus believing that he does not in fact exist. Yes, that might be one way of putting it. You're not convinced? I guess someone might prefer to say that the believing is part of the imagining in such cases, just as it is in the case of Macbeth. But maybe this is just a matter of terminology, and I can see why you want to single out the core sense you do, given your interest in the role of imagination in creativity. Believing in the truth or falsity, existence or non-existence of something, seems of less importance than simply imagining things without such commitments, as you put it. Yeah, what is typically involved in what I call active creativity is trying things out, playing with ideas, running through possibilities, and so on all of which do not involve commitment to the truth or falsity, existence or non-existence of something. OK. Just one more question, though, before we move on to the definition of creativity. As you said earlier, the term imagine can also be used in the sense of form a mental image. But someone might argue that imagine, in this sense, is also important in creativity, as illustrated in the famous case of Kekulé's conjuring up the image, albeit in a dream, of a snake devouring its own tail. Well, in my paper I argue that imagination can involve imagery. That's a case of sensory imagination. But not all image formation is imagination in the sense I identify. For instance, when I form memory images of something, I'm committed to the past existence of that thing. Now, sensory imagination is very important in active creativity, particularly for visual artists. For scientists and mathematicians, also sometimes report visualising various scenarios. The Kekulé case is a bit under-described in the literature, and it may be that he was daydreaming rather than dreaming. If that is so, it would have been sensory imagination that he was using. He could have been seeing the benzene molecule as a snake devouring its own tail. But if he really was dreaming, and in such a way that he thought he saw snakes, the dream images would not have been imaginings in my sense. If so, the case naturally fits what I call passive creativity, the kind of creativity which involves an idea just popping into one's head without one trying out alternative hypotheses. Keckley's dream images of snakes cause the idea of the ring structure of benzene to pop into his head on that view. OK, so let's agree that the important sense of imagining, as far as exploring the relationship between imagination and creativity is concerned, is the sense you've identified as the core sense thinking of something without a lethic or existential commitment. What then is creativity? You've talked of active and passive creativity, but how is creativity itself to be characterised? Many people regard creativity as requiring both originality and value. But you suggest that flair is also required. Could you say what you mean by flair and why you think that this is also required? Sure. The production of something original and valuable isn't enough for creativity, since creativity is a matter not just of what someone produces, 
but also of how it's produced. We can think up examples of producing original and valuable things in ways that don't count as creative. Producing something by using mechanical search routines or discoveries made purely by chance wouldn't count as creative, even though the products of these actions were original and valuable. So Charles Goodyear's discovery of how to make solid rubber by brute trial and error wouldn't count as creative, though it was an immensely important invention. And likewise, my flailing around in a paint-filled room and producing purely by chance a great abstract painting wouldn't count as creative either. So Flair is meant to rule out at least these kinds of cases. Isn't there a danger here, though, that the claim that Flair is also required may be true, but trivial? After all, if we can't specify what it is independently, then aren't we left with a conception of Flair as whatever it is that turns the production of something original and valuable into a creative act? Yeah, I agree that's a danger. Though I do think that even saying that those two conditions aren't enough for creativity is a point worth making, since it's one that's so easy to overlook. However, I think that we can say a bit more about this third condition. When I said purely by chance, I didn't mean that my actions in the paint-filled room were not intentional. I think any act, if it's to count as an act at all, as opposed to a bit of reflex behaviour, must be intentional under some description. And my activities in the room were, after all, intentional under the description trying to get out of here. Nor do I think that the creative person must always act under the description of being creative. Indeed, I think if you try to be creative, it's often self-defeating, and leads to a kind of empty originality, what Kant called mannerism. The claim that I produced a painting purely by chance is best captured by saying that I produced it merely by luck. And making something merely by luck is opposed to making something by skill. So I think that flair is a kind of skill. But isn't there an obvious objection to this? For isn't it a commonplace that a painter can be highly skilled, technically, but still be uncreative? Well, that's true, of course. But all it shows is that the kind of skills involved in being creative aren't the same as those of simply being technically proficient, being able to paint in accurate perspective, for example. They're less domain-specific than that. And these skills are also what we might call non-routinized. Think of a routine as a rule which, if competently followed, will produce some known result. For example, a recipe is a routine. Follow a recipe competently and you'll produce results shown in the cookery book. Some skills consist in the ability to follow routines, such as basic cookery skills. But not all skills are abilities to follow routines. After all, one can cook without relying on the cookbook, producing subtle variations in tastes and textures in one's cooking. Flair is an example of one kind of non-routinized skill. Flair can't be routinized, since a routine is something that produces an already known result. But if it's already known, it's not genuinely creative. OK, so let's agree, for the purposes of investigating the relationship between imagination and creativity, that the important notion of imagination is the one you've identified as the core sense. Imagining involves thinking of something without a lethic or existential commitment, and that creativity involves originality, value and flair. In your paper, you suggest two models of the role that the imagination might play in creativity, which you call the display model and the search model. On the display model, the imagination displays the results of creativity to the creative person, but does not itself generate the results, which come from elsewhere, such as dreaming. 
We've already mentioned the case of Kekile. However, as you rightly argue, this only does justice at best to passive creativity and not to active creativity. To provide an account of active creativity, we need a different model, such as the search model. On the search model, the imagination plays a role in creativity in searching through possibilities, from which the best is then selected. As you see it, however, on neither of these models does imagination act as a source of creativity. Rather, you suggest, and this is the central claim of your paper, imagination is involved in creativity as the vehicle of active creativity. Could you explain the distinction here between the source and vehicle of creativity and your central claim? Sure. The vehicle of creativity is what we use in being creative. The source of creativity is what explains why someone is creative. I argued in my paper that imagination is suited of its nature to be the vehicle of active creativity. Since active creativity consists in trying out various approaches in the course of creating something. Imagination in the sense I identified, imagination which doesn't involve commitments to truth or to existence, is well suited for trying out various approaches. Unlike belief, it does not involve a commitment to holding anything true, so we can try out various hypotheses in imagination without being committed to their truth. And unlike intending, imagination doesn't involve commitment to doing something, so one can contemplate various courses of action in imagination without acting on them. So imagination allows you to play around with options in being creative. The great German poet and playwright Friedrich von Schiller thought that art involved a kind of play drive, and I think that's right about creativity. We freely play with possibilities in being creative, and the imagination is well suited to doing that. As Schiller put it, human beings only play when they're in the fullest sense of the word a human being and they're only fully a human being when they play. So according to Schiller, play and creativity are essential to human life. But unlike Schiller, you don't believe that imagination is in itself the source of creativity, though. No, that's right, I don't. The reason is that one can use one's imagination in uncreative, predictable ways, which is true of most fantasy. Since such uses of imagination are not creative one can't explain creative people's actions simply by saying that they are using their imaginations and uncreative people are not. But I'd stress that what I'm claiming is that imagination is not in itself the source of creativity. That is, merely on its own it can't explain creativity. Certain uses of imagination can be creative, though. I've suggested that we should also consider a third model of the role of imagination in creativity, which I call the connection model. On this model, the imagination is involved in creativity in making connections between things. Consider the creativity that Kasparov exhibits in playing chess. Unlike the chess computer Deep Blue, Kasparov is unable to run through more than a small subset of the possible moves and counter-moves that might be made at any given point in a game. But as you yourself put it, what he may do is, quote, use his imagination in seeing a current position as a variation of one with which he was previously familiar. In other words, it is in seeing connections with previous positions that he's able to narrow down the range of possible moves to consider and select a fruitful one. The creativity exhibited in aspect perception and metaphor-making, which is the example that you yourself discuss, also involves connection. 
So do you think that there's also a connection model in addition to the display and search models that you identify? Or do you think that it would be subsumed under the other two models? And if connection does deserve to be highlighted as an important feature of creativity, then would this provide any sense in which the imagination might be regarded as a source of creativity? I think the idea of the connection model is very helpful. It is indeed distinct from the display and search models, and also captures nicely the general point behind my discussion of metaphor. I suggested in my paper that good metaphors bring together otherwise disparate domains in a way that invites us to look at something in an original but apt fashion. The idea of connecting things together captures that point very well and gives it, so to speak, a local habitation and a name. You've mentioned metaphors, but another good example might be jokes, which are often also discussed in the context of understanding creativity. Here's one that generally gets a good groan, and one that only works in an oral medium, if that doesn't give the joke away. According to Freud, what comes between fear and sex? I don't know, Mike. What does come between fear and sex? Fumph! Well, Mike, don't give up the day job. Oh dear. But awful as it is, it illustrates what is characteristic of many jokes, a connecting of two disparate domains, to use your terms, or conceptual spaces as Margaret Bowden might put it. In asking the question, the reference to Freud naturally makes us seek the answer in the domain of Freudian theory, with its talk of fear, envy, sex, snakes and so on. Could envy, for example, come between fear and sex? But of course, Freud was also a German speaker, and in the domain of German number terms, the answer is easy. Fear, fumpf, sex. What creativity such a joke involved, when it was first thought up, what amusement it might cause when it's first heard depends on the connecting of Freud as a psychoanalyst with Freud as a German speaker and the sudden switch from the first to the second, much as in aspect perception, which also involves connection. I think that we should allow that the connection model works in the case of some jokes. This is particularly true of jokes involving puns, such as a multilingual monstrosity you've just told. Puns involve shifting between two meanings of one word, and so in a way connecting things together. But I wouldn't say that the connection model fits all jokes well. Here's a better one, which is in Arthur Kersler's book, The Act of Creation. So imagine we're at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Okay. An art dealer bought a canvas-signed Picasso and travelled all the way to Cannes to discover whether it was genuine. Picasso was working in his studio. He cast a single look at the canvas and said, it's a fake. (laughs) A few months later, the dealer bought another canvas, signed Picasso. Again, he travelled to Cannes, and again Picasso, after a single glance, grunted, it's a fake. (laughs) But, cher maître, protested the dealer, it so happens that I saw you with my own eyes, working on this very picture several years ago. (laughs) Picasso shrugged. I often paint fakes. (laughs) Beres, your talents are obviously wasted as a philosopher. Ever thought of being a stand-up comic? Well, it hadn't occurred to me, but now you mention it. Anyway, what's interesting about the Picasso story is that it's not really about connecting different things together. It works more by violating a conceptual norm. You can't fake your own work. And quite a lot of humour works by virtue of absurdity or incongruity in the sense of norm violations. 
I guess if this is so, then jokes might provide an illustration of Margaret Bowden's account of creativity, as involving the exploring and/or transforming of a conceptual space. By violating a norm, a joke reveals something of the rules and boundaries of a conceptual space, and depends upon the recognition of this in having the effect it does. Yes, that may be so. Actually, the Picasso joke violates more than one norm. For instance, there are social or conversational norms, such as that one shouldn't make self-evidently crazy replies to serious questions on serious topics. Anyway, not only in respect of jokes, but also in other cases, I wouldn't want to overgeneralize the application of the connection idea. There are kinds of active creativity which are not well captured by the idea of connection. For instance, creative music might not involve connecting anything much with anything else, other than the trivial fact that notes are connected together. Creative music just might be beautiful in a new way and have certain formal properties that hadn't been heard before. And the same could be true of the kind of creativity involved in thinking up new shapes and forms in the visual arts. I also wouldn't say that the connection model shows that imagination is the source of creativity. If we mean by this that imagination is in itself the source of creativity, that's for the reason I mentioned earlier. Imagination on its own can't explain creativity, since there are uncreative uses of imagination. But could it be said that imagination, when connecting things together, is a source of creativity? The problem with that is that one can connect things together in an uncreative fashion, which is indeed what we generally do. Everyone connects cutlery with eating, paper with scissors, and so on. So the most promising way to defend the source claim will be to say that imagination is the source of creativity when it connects things together in a fruitful and original way, which is how you formulate the view. Then one could say that an explanation for active creativity is that the creative person is connecting together disparate elements in a fruitful and original way. But isn't this open to the charge once again of triviality? If we say that it's only making those connections which are valuable and original, i.e., creative, which explains creativity, then isn't our explanation circular? Well, I wouldn't agree with that objection, in part because the explanation does tell one something: that the making of connections is sometimes involved in creativity. But though the explanation does have content, I think it's going to be at best only a partial explanation. Of why some people are creative and others not, since there seem to be lots of other factors, such as those of personality type and sheer motivation, that play an explanatory role in creativity. But nothing much may turn on whether one calls the connection model, shown in the making of metaphors and elsewhere, a description of one use of the creative imagination, as I'd prefer to do, or a partial explanation of creativity, as I think you'd prefer to do. It's still the case that imagination, despite what many of the Romantics thought, can't in itself be an explanation of creativity, and that's the point I was after. I agree with you that the Romantics had an absurdly inflated conception of the imagination, and that when we look in detail at our talk of imagination and creativity, we can see this. So perhaps on that point we should draw our discussion to a close, and I should thank you for flying down from St Andrews to talk about your work. Thanks. But before we end, Mike,、uh, I really must ask, and I'm sure many others will want to know: Do you really have a cat called Emmanuel? Alas, I'm afraid not. That was a creative stroke of my own, connecting cat with cats. I'm allergic to cats, actually, so I have to imagine that I have a cat. 
What better name to give an imagined cat than a manual? Ah, so in imagining a manual, you are not committed to its existence. No, but I am committed to its non-existence. Do you have a cat, Barris? Unfortunately not. So maybe at some level we ought to agree in our conceptions of imagination after all. We can both imagine a cat together. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.